Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. This is BatChat, the podcast from the Bat Conservation Trust. So it's a bank holiday weekend and I'm staying in a campsite on the edge of Stroud in Gloucestershire and I'm walking down through a green wooded valley and I'm on my way to see Ray Cannon from the Woodchester Mansion Trust to find out more about the bats that live in Woodchester Mansion. I started off by asking Ray how long he'd volunteered for the Woodchester Mansion Trust. Since 2006, so that's what, coming up 13 years now. Yeah. I quit work a few couple of years before that. I've known about the mansion since 1996 when it came up in a creative writing course, dare I say it, because um, one of the then volunteers was on the course and he wrote about it one night. And within about three weeks, he'd brought the entire class of 16 people up there to have a look at it. So, so 10 years later, I bumped into him down here and he just said to me, why don't you do something? So, you know, the rest is history, as I say. I mean, it started off as a tour guide and then slowly I've got sucked into the office because IT skills. I blame creative writing and IT for my involvement in this place. I'm now a trustee and I work in the office a few days a week. Yeah. And yeah, that just about brings us up to date and I just love these creatures. And I'm working you know, reasonably closely. I mean, I'm providing a little bit of the techie support for Roger when he wants to know things like this. So that's nice. I like it. So, Ray, we've come up to the first floor of the mansion and we've come into a little room called the Bat Observatory. In front of us, there's a couple of monitors. Can you just explain what they are? What we've got, um, we've got some fixed and some static cameras in the bat roosts and around the bat roost area. And the, the, the mobile ones are the ones we display to the public. And that means that we can actually see the bats. We normally work with a fixed camera position but we do have the facility to zoom in and you know, zoom in and focus on particular bats so we can have screen sized bats you know, a bat a foot high which is actually quite disconcerting because when you go down to watch them flying around and you see them hanging up you suddenly realize just how small they actually are um, but the idea of this is it's not just for the public it's also there for roger ransom to do his studies counts one of the things he does on a regular basis, weekly during the summer, starting actually this week on the 21st of April. Basically, he'll be down here every week on a Sunday night between now and probably about mid-September, possibly early October, 
counting the number of bats that are left. And even that's a scientific study as well, because he uses the cameras to watch the bats going in and out of the roost. But it's very high-tech counting, not because basically somebody is sat there focused on that screen with a clicker, one for, you know, left for in, to, uh, right for out, something like that. And then when the flow has stopped, and part of the science here is Roger's counting them according to the time they leave, according to the light level outside, and in five-minute in- intervals, that sort of thing. So, you know, we do this count once a week, so the cameras get used for that as well. We've also got recorders attached to these cameras. So upstairs there's continuous recording or as much as we want to record. At the moment we're not doing much, but they're motion sensitive. And how long ago were the cameras installed? These particular ones were installed over... We've been running with them for 12 months now, so a majority of them were installed during the period over the winter of the year before last. I mean, we've had a number of cameras around and... The behavioural studies video on there was actually filmed on the previous cameras. Believe me, the the difference in resolution, difference in quality really shows up. Um, What I want to show you just on this one, if I may, if I zoom in, there's a newspaper there on the floor. And pitch black, when it will focus, they're autofocus as well. You can actually zoom in and you can read the print on them. As I say, it's pitch black. I'm glad they left it there, you see, because it's a, it's a lovely demo when we do our bat walks. It's a lovely demo of the facility of these things. And then we've got high, um, you know, high def screens as well. And how long was the process of putting the cameras in? Was it a couple of days or was it longer than that? We've been pretty lucky of working with a company called Scott Turtle Security, who actually put some security cameras around the building. And this project actually started because they put four security cameras around the sides of the building and then they offered us one camera to go into one of the roosts. So we took up their kind offer and they did install one for free and then we put in the rest of the stuff. So they were enthusiastic about what they were doing as well. And I think probably a couple of visits to actually install the cameras. Putting the cameras in is a matter of a, a day, I think. You know, they do it within the day. And we've had the, shall I say, electronics expert down here a few times to tweak various aspects of the system. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the latest of that was that now we've got the brewery plus the greater, plus the lesser exit and the lesser roost on one screen. And we've got all the um, greater stuff. We've got a fixed camera. We've got the movable one and we've got the exit on that camera, on that screen. So that means actually now that everything that's going through recorders for the lessers is on that screen and for the greaters is on the other screen. So that helps to separate things out. And why are you so keen in showing the bats off to the visitors that you get here at the mansion? They've been here for a long time. We're trying to make a feature of it. Um, And it also sort of serves as a degree of education as well because we run half a dozen bat walks during the course of the year. The fact that we've got the facility for Roger to um, study the bats, and that's primarily what it's for. I mean, the mansion has contributed something, but, but in fairness, Roger's probably contributed at least two-thirds of the, the costs. Natural England have also supported us as well in this project. But the fact that we've got these, rather than just having them sat there doing nothing when visitors are here, 
it makes a lot of sense just to put them on there because some visitors are, shall I say, terrified by bats. Yeah. But a majority of them are not. They're actually fascinated. And if, if I happen to be in here and I'm, you know, when visitors are here, I will talk about them and you can see a, you know, see a sort of degree of fascination. So we're trying to use it as an additional vehicle to promote the mansion, really. It's one of the attributes we've got. If you look at the clock tower, so there are two bat gargoyles on there, which probably indicates to me there were bats around this place 160 years ago when it was built. So, you know, we're promoting it. And what sort of comments do you get from visitors when they're sat here watching the cameras? Mainly that they are fascinated to learn a bit about them, because I think most people are totally ignorant of bats. And when you can talk about them, and I mean, I will drop into the conversation the fact that babies are born at 30% of the body weight of the adult, which you know is a bit eye-watering when you convert that into a, you know, a three-stone baby. But... You know, just telling them a little bit about the life cycle and what they do and when they come. And of course, we have the other part of the explanation, which I'm trying to address with a couple of little you know, little pieces of information there about if they come in here in early, early in April, for instance, as they did this year or mid-September, these cameras are on. They can watch the video, but there's no, you know, there are no bats visible. So the next question is, where are they? Yeah. So you talk about where they go and a bit about the life cycle of bats. And I think most people really do find it interesting. And when we have the bat walks, to see them flying around your head in the bat corridor, that is really, you know, it's really thrilling. And are the bat walks very popular here? And I think out of the five we ran successfully last year, we can only do 15 at a time in here because it just gets too cosy. So 15 five of them that's 75 and I'd say we probably had 70 of those places filled last year and certainly a couple of them were oversubscribed and I'm hoping that hoping that we can do the same this year I work with a colleague from the Gloucester Bat Group so you know we'll have about an hour's conversation about the bats looking at them and such like and last year in one particular talk there's an element on the video of the bat behavior where bat is shaking off baby before they go out i love this idea that you can hang the baby up and go and do your shopping you know um but they were shaking off and we actually saw that in practice in no late in late in july i think last year and it was really magic to see it on there just as it really does on you know you see the pictures of it and then you think well okay that's really happening for you know it's happening for real so yeah, people do are interested. And if, if we can do anything about it, we can spread a little bit of, well, what do you do if you find bats and things like that? I, you know, I don't handle them and such like. But also dispel the myth that they'll get in your hair. The other thing we've got here, because Roger used to teach in Rednock School in Dursley. So when a picture of Roger comes up on the screen, oh, he used to teach me biology, you know, because so, <laughs> you've got that generational thing. I mean, he's been doing this for years. As we approach the mansion this morning, the scaffolding up, what sort of challenges are there to looking after a grade one listed building like this? The building itself, um, our immediate challenge is we could do with about £5 million. Pounds. Um, that's what the estimated cost of restoring the building is. We don't plan to finish it, which means that we'll keep it in the status in now so you can see the way a Victorian Gothic building was constructed. And right at the very moment, of course, it's slightly topical because Benjamin Bucknell, who is the architect for the Victorian bit of this, 
was a disciple of the elder duke, whose name you might have heard crop up not too long, you know, in the last yeah. few days because of the burning down of the roof of um, Notre Dame in Paris. And in fact, it turns out that he was the one who designed the little spire on the top and the one you probably saw the video of falling into the heap. And I've heard one or two comments on the radio, some praising him for what he did, and others saying, well, he'd made every church in France look the same. So he's got bad press and he's got good press on that score. But the problems we've got, I suppose we've had one immediate problem when we were on the brewery area. Some of the roof there is in a little bit of trouble at the moment. We're going to have to do some remedial work on it. And I thought that we ought to be doing that work during the winter because the bats aren't here. But in fact, Roger was saying you need to be careful during the winter because you find some of the bats, not necessarily the greater and lesser horseshoes, no, because they don't crawl into little spaces, but pipistrels and things like that will. Therefore, it turns out that probably the best time to do this work is during the summer, providing we're not working there in the hours because we are going to have to have some scaffolding or something probably inside as well as outside. Yeah and do some shoring up there. But by and large, that's not a, it's not a problem at all. Um, Roger is actually very good about what we can do and what we can't do. And we consult him closely, obviously. Yeah. Um, a few years back when we were having Halloween parties and things like that, on the south side of the building in the main rooms, you know, the issues came up, what, do, um, what effect will this have on the bats? And then again, when we've had filming down here, There are maybe not too worried about the area, providing they stay away from the entrance to the hibernaculum. So, you know, I mean, there's a respect for them. But in terms of of actually being a problem at all, that's not an issue. So, yeah. Great, thank you so much. Okay. And in late June, I was back at Woodchester Mansion talking to Dr. Roger Ransom about his lifelong study of the greater horseshoe bats at Woodchester in a very echoey room whilst his volunteers were undertaking a count of the roost using the cameras next door. Roger, can you just give us a back, bit of background as to what the mansion is and what bat species we've got here and what sort of bats you're interested in here? Uh, well, the mansion's a perfect uh, derelict, abandoned uh, building uh, set in wonderful habitats in a lovely valley, which was originally a, um, a monastery garden. Um, it uh, has five species of bats in it. Uh, currently, uh, number one in terms of population size is the lesser horseshoe bat. Uh, uh, second comes the greater horseshoe bat. Uh, thirdly, we have uh, what we believe are common pipistrels. There's uh, quite a good colony uh, taking advantage of the heaters in the uh, greater horseshoe attic. Um, and then we have a small group of uh, long-eareds, uh, which are, we haven't really studied at all. And lastly, uh, for the last few years, or probably for perhaps 10 or more years, we've had a single serotine uh, occupying uh, different parts. And you've been studying the bats here for over 60 years now. How did you end up studying it for so long and when did you start? Uh, I started as a sixth form student uh, 
1956, which was when I was 16. Uh, and uh, I'd gone into the sixth form at 15, and in my second year, we had a talk uh, by a French teacher who uh, used to ring uh, birds, and he'd had gone to France and started helping out with some French people uh, ringing greater horseshoe bats, would you believe? And he gave us a talk, and uh, that talk sparked a group of four of us uh, to actually um, start a, a ringing study uh, in, in the uh, mines of Minchinhampton and the uh, mansion building itself. Uh, that, while I was the only one who was fortunate enough, uh, there were four of us, but I was the only one who was fortunate enough to uh, get into Bristol University, uh, which meant that I didn't have to stop my uh, project whilst I was doing my uh, undergraduate studies. Uh, I did a, a three-year degree and then followed it with a PGCE one-year course. And during all that time, I was accumulating basic data and uh, making sure that I knew uh, the best way of collecting the information. And I had a lot of help from people uh, in Somerset. Uh, and uh, I, I was studying lots of different places to see if they were doing, bats were doing the same thing in, in, in all these different regions. Um, and uh, it, was, it was clear to me that uh, what was happening in the different places was uh, following the same sort of uh, general pattern. Um, and I was, Having uh, finished my university degree, uh, university studies, I uh, looked for a job uh, as a teacher and t t amazingly I was so lucky to get first of all a position that was available six miles from the mansion and secondly uh, whether I was the only ca candidate I don't know but I was offered the job and uh, I stayed at that school for 33 years. Wow. Uh, and I only left uh, as a result of the national curriculum uh, wrecking the uh, courses that I'd set up at uh, uh, the school. And um, that sort of pushed me into environmental studies, uh, advice. And a lot of the research done in this building was actually used uh, and we trialled uh, lots of the mitigation techniques in this building. And from that, I was pretty confident when uh, we came to 2000, uh, seven years after I uh, left teaching, uh, I managed to get uh, a huge contract to uh, stabilise 45 acres of underground workings, which had 12 species of bats using it. Um, and that gave me an income which could fund up, uh, generously all of, all of the, the research which is carried on. Um, so I am independent uh, and I, I make my own decisions as to which direction I go. But, but having said that, uh, I benefited from collaborative uh, help from uh, particularly Gareth Jones. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, and a whole series of uh, PhD students 
who mutually we, we benefit because they introduce new new topics, new aspects of, of the work, um, and, and I'm able to offer them the uh, basic information and, and the data which they couldn't otherwise obtain. And you've been bringing the bats all those years. From that, have you been able to see how the population of the horseshoes has changed over time? Yes, I could have done that without reading them, actually, yeah. because um, now, now we've done all the, all the uh, trials, we know that the best way to judge a, a population uh, of great horseshoe bats is if you know the maternity boost, uh, just go in and count the babies born uh, after dusk exit uh, over a period of two to three weeks, okay. and you'll get a, a good basis for working it out. Um, by individually ringing the bats, we've got unique data which um, sp spans several, because they live 30 years, I've spanned two complete cycles <laughs> of uh, births and deaths. And we followed the numbers which have gone, well, originally where there were 110 babies born in this building in the late 1950s. And then following the severe winters of the early 60s, they slumped to, uh, well, I think we were down at that stage to 65. And uh, for a long time, they sort of struggled at 65 uh, until we got to uh, the 1980s. And then we had a second very bad series of consecutive bad winters and cold spring, they do the damage. And is that, you know, do they do the damage because bats can't survive on the fat reserves or is it because horses need to go out and forage in the winter? It's partly the winter foraging, but not mainly. The, the, the most mortality of these bats is going to occur really uh, generally in April, May and early June. And the, and the killer is early June because up until the end of May, they can still use prolonged torpor, which is what hibernation is, to actually sit out several days of bad weather. Once you get into June, they can't stay in torpor for more than 24 hours. They wake up every day. If day after day they're not getting anything to eat, within a few days they're dying. Um, but the other factor is when you get a series of bad uh, summers and winters, you get a, uh, a lot of stunted babies being uh, surviving for short periods. Um, and that really prepares the way for a really bad uh, spring, which happened in 1986. And our numbers went from 65 births to 33 to 20 over two summers and wow. uh, we nearly lost the whole and this happened in west wales it happened in the forest of dean you know anywhere where there were proper studies going showed that this wasn't just happening in in uh, Woodchester mansion it was uh, happening generally and in 2011 you wrote an article for bat conservation trust bat news explaining that alpacas can be good for horseshoe bats undertaking winter foraging how is that so, and how often do horseshoe bats forage in the winter? Well, uh, that's a very difficult question to answer. But uh, basically, 
the, the, the two groups of greater horseshoe bats that generally have the greatest problems to survive a winter will be the adult males that have had t mating territories and they've mated with the females in the early part of the winter. Uh, and rather like the deer, they deprive themselves of, of food and they don't store up the fat that they should do to survive the winter. So uh, the adult male is, is a is great risk. And the others that are great risks are, are the juveniles born very late in the summer because they have, they've got to wait until they've completed their growth and that conflicts with depositing fat. You can't do both. Um, so uh, what happens is in the, in the winter, you take, if it's severe weather and you cannot feed, say from January to uh, beginning of March, then uh, you've got a good chance of uh, not surviving that period. But that's fairly unusual. I can't think of many years where that happened. Mm. The worst one was 1962-3, where snow came on Boxing Day and didn't thaw till mid-February. And where do the alpacas come in then? Well, uh, now I've got a great deal of time for alpacas. <laughs> uh, I'm not in favour of uh, introducing foreign species into an ecosystem, but... Uh, in practical terms, uh, if you're trying to get grazing uh, systems in place close to uh, roosts, summer or winter, uh, sheep are very good, especially in winter. Um, but the trouble with sheep is uh, they, they suffer a lot from uh, dog owners who are not careful in looking after their animals. And uh, it's a big, uh, it's very difficult to persuade anybody to graze sheep close, close to bat roosts. Now, cattle very rarely are left out uh, by farmers because they, uh, they need to get their growth through in order to be able to sell them. Uh, and now an alpaca, it, it has a lot of things going for it. One is... Um, it is a very economic animal to keep. You can keep more of them uh, on the same piece of land. They've got soft feet and they don't churn up the uh, turf, which is called poaching, uh, like cows would do or horses. So if you've got alpacas, you've got an animal which is big enough to kick a fox in the face and deter it from uh, you know, attacking it. Uh, and we were very lucky for several years where we had a really nice um, flock of our alpacas going and then sadly the, uh, the owners went through a divorce and uh, fell apart and I'm afraid it's been very difficult to all the alpacas had to go I'm afraid and I mean the volunteers next door in the camera room are counting out the bats this evening so Populations at the moment seem to be fairly stable. Your last, last count last week was how many? Uh, well, um, last week was 116, but we have had we've had down to 18 and 17 mm. not so long ago, and we were. Um, I think the big problem is it's easy to uh, get a great get a regime that will generate certain insects at certain times of year. 
But if the weather doesn't, doesn't uh, play ball with you, then it doesn't always work. And, and the last two springs, we've had two very dry spells in the spring, and it's had a bad effect on the uh, tipulids, the daddy long legs. And I, I think what happens is you get, uh, in the early spring, you'll get cockchafers coming along. They're the best diet they can have. Uh, give, given all the insects they, they eat at one time, which doesn't happen, but if you could, they would eat the cockchafers. They're idiot flyers, they fly low over the ground, they land on the floor, they grab them. But uh, after the cockchafers, if you haven't got tipulis to take their place, the bats just have to go back and spread out all around the hibernation sites again. Uh, and then you're waiting for the moths to come, and moths are as you know, in southern England, haven't done too well. So. so populations seem to be fluctuating even now. What does the future hold for the roost here? Where, where do we go to continue conserving the, this roost and horseshoe bats in general? Well, this uh, colony is extremely fortunate uh, in its own right because... Uh, the building here is owned by the Stroud District Council, which used to have the only green council in, <laughs> in the country. Uh, because the, the whole valley is an SSSI, then we, we've, uh, there is safeguards for the whole of this valley, which is two miles long, lovely lakes. Uh, we've reinstituted the kind of habitat that was here in the 50s, which sadly went uh, for commercial reasons at that time. Um, so, and, and we are adjacent to some pretty significant National Trust um, pieces of land, which at least means no one can uh, use them for housing developments. The biggest problem we have here is the gradual creeping urbanization. Okay. Um, and this is a big growth area for housing and um, down in the valley, uh, there are some substantial developments that are, have already got consent. Now, what we realised when foot and mouth uh, disease hit the forest of Dean, when they slaughtered all the, uh, the livestock in the forest, our bats suffered as well as theirs, even though there were no there was, there was no slaughtering in this valley. We had our normal cows. These dung beetles come in from huge distances because uh, an aphodious dung beetle can sniff out a cow pancake at 12 kilometres. Wow. They are awesome, some of these insects. And we, we don't really understand this. So it's drawn in from a wide, a huge area. And the housing developments, is that because of a mixture of things? Is it both taking up the land and the connectivity, or is it the lighting strategies, or is it a mixture of things that the housing developments are bad for the local barristers? Well, uh, there are lots of things it could be, but I, I think what seems to always happen is as you urbanise, then the, the land around the, the area can't be farmed in the way that it was before. And uh, what we really need are um, uh, enough farms who are willing to leave uh, cattle or sheep or alpacas, if they want that, <laughs> um, uh, out all the time. Because 
only the, the insect life cycles are primarily annual. And, and if you rob all the winter insects of, of their food uh, by taking away well, the geotrooper's beetle, which is as big as a cocktail almost, uh, in the forest of Dean, they're two a penny. And, and when we did diet studies over there, you could see 90% geotroopies. If we catch bats over, over here and we uh, get the droppings from them, they're full of Ophion wasps, mm. and they're parasitic on moths. If the moths go down, the parasitic wasps go down, there's no door beetles. So you, this is why our, our numbers locally in, in, in the Minchinhampton mines have gone down. Years ago, there were 110 when the cattle were out on the, feeding on Minchinhampton Common all year round. Nowadays, they're not there after November. And you mentioned mines a couple of times. There are basements here in the mansion. Do the bats hibernate here or do they go elsewhere into the Forest of Dean area? Well, um, in the winter, bats have to disperse so that they there are fewer of them in a small area and they can only go short distances. Now, uh, this is a cold valley. And uh, if we, we used to have up to 20 uh, hibernating here, but no more when there were 350 total population. So it's not possible, no matter how good the hibernation conditions are here, for them to stay here. Yeah. They will go uh, by choice. If the, if the conditions close by at Minchinhampton were perfect, they'll go over there and form big clusters. But what they don't, they don't do that. What they do is they travel uh, across the motorway or under the motorway. They go head for the River Severn, they go down Arlingham and they cross the noose where, where, where the seven borer can be seen and they go and join the Cinderford bats in the Forest of Dean because they've got loads of food. So they're travelling long they distances. Will tra- even in their first year you'll get juveniles travel there but to find those sites they've got to be born early. Yes. So you're back to birth timing. And being involved with bat work for more than 60 years mean you've seen advances in technology what bits of tech have really helped with the study and are there still any bits of original kit that you would prefer over modern technology? Ah, well, the, the, the most important factor for, uh, technologically for me was David Bale, uh, who lives in Cheltenham. He and I collaborated together on, on the sort of detectors we needed to do the monitoring, both for the works and also Subsequently, they're the machines that Maggie Andrews uses for her social uh, work, the time expansion, high quality machines, which the French bought in large numbers, you know, but the British didn't use them. And I'm afraid he, he's, he's got disillusioned and really it's a, it's a tragedy because I'm using his machines that I bought 2005 and here we are 15 years later and they're still working yeah um and i've got them out there through the summer getting data for gareth for some of his students or or for maggie and the one of the big breakthroughs coming next is going to be social interactions and i think that's a very fruitful area and your work here is thought to be the world's 
longest continuous study of a, a mammal by a single person. What's kept your dedication to the study? What is it that keeps you coming back time after time to carry on the study? Um, my inquisitive nature and my refusal to be condemned by educationists in the past. I think uh, many teachers have no idea what makes a scientist. And you can get a first-class honours degree based primarily on, on remembrance and regurgitation, and that does not make you a, a research scientist. Look at the average degree of a fellow of the Royal Society. It isn't a first by any means. And what's the hardest thing to keep motivated about the study? Time. Uh, I, I, I'm doing so many different things at the moment. Uh, it, 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 it's absolutely not only stressful on me, and I'm amazingly fortunate in my inheritance with my build and my uh, longevity. If you don't live long, you can't study these bats. Uh, and um, my wife's this is the reason. And the volunteers that you have coming to do the counts, how vital is the help from those volunteers to help you do the study? Oh, I couldn't do it without them. And we've always had really good. We've got 14, 15 different people in there. Yeah. So uh, generally, we've got no problem getting people to come. In fact, often I have to disappoint people. Yeah. Um, and Colin Morris is, uh, I mean, very sad. He, he Vince and Wildlife just um, dispensed with his services, but he's a very great help to mm. me as well. Um, and he comes up from Dorset to help with it if, if, if we're short for handlers. But yeah, you, none of this could be done on your own. It's just not possible. Roger Anson, thank you very much. And if you want to visit Woodchester Mansion, the link to their website, which includes details of when the bats have returned, is in the show notes to this episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we visit Rye Harbour Nature Reserve in Sussex in the search for Nathusius pipistrelle bats. Until then, don't forget to subscribe, and that way the next episode will automatically find its way onto your phone. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast. 